Welcome to Pause and Reflect, a brand new podcast which looks to discuss the furry fandom and profile one creative or significant member of the community in each episode. I am your host Mike Pause, and joining me today on the phone from San Francisco is the author Kyle Gold, writer of Out of Position, Vol, and Waterways. Kyle is a member of the Furry Writers Guild and a winner of eight Ursa Major Awards. Welcome to the show, Carl. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. So, how did you come across Furry? It was uh, some 20, almost 25 years ago now when a friend of mine pointed me to a little online gaming slash social hangout called Furry Muck and said, you should check that out. And I did. And I stuck around. <laughs> I think a lot of people will probably appreciate that you did. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I appreciate it more. I certainly gotten a lot out of the community and I've talked about how much I enjoy being part of it. And just, you know, I've been going to conventions for a long time, far longer than I've been giving panels or anything like that. And I've always enjoyed interacting with the other people. I find an openness and an enthusiasm and energy in furry fandom that it's hard to find anywhere else. Yes. Why did you pick the species you have? Wow. Well, it was it was a long time ago. I've played because furry muck allows you to, to make different characters and change your character species and play different species and I tried many things in my early years there, and foxes were always just the ones that I kept coming back to that felt more right for me than anything else. They have the reputation of being clever, and when I was growing up, I was always rather undersized compared to my classmates, and so I relied on being uh, smarter in school, uh, which felt very fox-like to me. And I suppose that's probably why I identify with them. I see. You recently released um, Over Time, which is the fifth and final book in the Out of Position series. Was this a series you expected to be as successful as it has been? Oh, absolutely not. The I've, I've told bits of this in the past, but the first short story that I wrote, the one that began the whole saga, was actually rejected for publication when I sent it out. I wrote more stories because I couldn't stop thinking about the characters. And when I realized that I had on my hands this gay romance football book, I happened to have met the artists who formed the team known as Blotch at the time and asked them if they would be interested in illustrating a book because I thought if I'm going to sell a football book to the furry fandom, it would be nice to have some really top quality illustrations to help do that. As it turned out, that absolutely worked. Their art has attracted many, many people to the series. But I've also found that the story itself has held people's attention and has pulled its own weight. So yeah, I did not expect it to be successful when I was starting it out. But I was very glad that other people found the same affection for the characters that uh, that I've had. Yeah, I mean, Out of Position deals with a, a gay professional American football player. Considering a lot of people in the fandom don't always associate with sports, was that a worry for you? 
I mean, a little bit as I, as I expressed, but I felt like, and I, I've written this in one of the books, these, these aren't stories about football. They're stories about a gay romance and a gay relationship with football as part of the backdrop and the supporting cast. I put enough information in the book to allow people to figure out what's going on in the games. And people have told me that, that those tutorials have been very helpful to them. I've had several people tell me that they, they don't necessarily a hundred percent get football now, but they understand it enough to be able to follow along with friends and family and not to just have to go into another room because they don't understand what's going on. So I wanted to put enough in there because I realized people would not necessarily be familiar with the game and that seems to have worked in most cases. Yeah, the sto- obviously the story's about uh, uh, the kind of first professional American football player coming out in this universe. And what's interesting is, of course, during the time of the, the novels coming out, it kind of happened for real with uh, Michael Sam, who was the first NFL football player to actually come out. Did you yes. feel that the um, how you perceived it, the attitudes was correct, or do you feel he got a worse deal than say Dev does? Well, he was in a different situation, and there is a character in the books who is also gay, but is in more of the situation that. Michael Sam was, where he's not a starting player. He's not one of the critical pieces on an improving team. And he decides not to come out basically because he says, I'm disposable. If I'm creating unwanted media attention, then, you know, they can just, they can cut me and they can find a half dozen other guys who can do the same thing. I think ultimately, I heard a lot of mixed reports on Michael Sam. I heard that He was very passionate about football and really wanted to play. I also saw some scouting reports that said the talent that he displayed in college was not necessarily one that would translate well to the pro level. And a lot of people were skeptical about his ability to make it with a pro team, sexual orientation notwithstanding. They they compared him to a couple other people who also who had been drafted in earlier years and had not caught on. Uh, Everything that I heard from about the situations he was in is that he was an excellent teammate, that he focused on football, that he was not a distraction. And he worked as hard as he could to try to catch on with a team somewhere. And that ultimately he didn't adapt well to the, to the NFL game. While I suspect that maybe his orientation played a part in the number of teams willing to give him a chance, Ultimately, once the teams did give him a chance, it was about talent. And if he made himself indispensable, then someone would have him on their team right now. I mean, you look at the people who are currently employed by the NFL. Greg Hardy is a, uh, I believe, defensive end who used to be with Carolina, who was charged with domestic assault. Um, He's the one, if you're familiar with the story, who allegedly threw his girlfriend down onto a bed piled with guns. And... He was released by Carolina and picked up by Dallas and continued to give a chance to play with Dallas, even though he didn't show very much um, maturity following his conviction and, you know, all of that turmoil suspension. He was suspended for some games by the league. I feel that if a talent at that level came out and said that he was gay, that he would certainly be given a chance by a team. It's it's much more of a 
black eye these days for teams to have a person charged with domestic assault out there than it would be to have someone who was gay. Uh, at this point, it doesn't seem to be a problem in the locker room or anything. And so I tend to feel like, unfortunately, you know, Michael Sam was very brave and the things that he did definitely will make it easier for the next person to come out. But ultimately, he just he may not have been right for the NFL. The last that I heard of him, he was trying out with a Canadian football league team. And I, I certainly wish him all the best and I hope he has success. And several people have gone up to the Canadian leagues, played for a few years, gotten their game to the point where they can come back to the NFL. And so uh, I, I do hope that happens for him. Yeah, um, let's hope that it hasn't um, stung anybody else from wanting to speak out in the future. Uh, hopefully not. So the other book you're writing at the moment is uh, Love Match, which is dealing with another professional sports player. And uh, you're also doing this with Patreon. How do you find writing yes. this one compared to kind of your standard novel writing process? Uh, it's not It's not completely different. Uh, the whole point of the the Patreon was to give people a chance to see a novel in progress, as it were. So I'm trying not to do something terribly different, but of course the format requires that, that some things be different. I'm writing much more in the discovery mode, which is I'm not doing strict outlining, or I, I was to start. Um, I found with posting a section at a time, it really helps to have the sections sort of planned out ahead of time, but I write them very much as I come to them. So I'm not doing a lot of writing ahead. Uh, I know certain plot points that happened, but there was a whole thing that I've just posted these past few weeks that was not in the original outline and just came up as I was writing, but it fit. So I so I went with it. It's not terribly different. The main difference, I think, is that this is a, a fairly long story at this point, and it feels like it probably won't be contained in just one book. At that level as well, with the, the book in kind of development alongside uh, fans, do you think it gives budding writers an opportunity to kind of see how you write and maybe learn from you? Uh, I, I hope so. I'm, uh, I also I have a monthly mailing list where I put out writing tips every month, and I try to be as accessible as possible with aspiring writers to help them in getting over some of the basic problems and worries and fears of people starting out in writing. What's your favorite book or who is the author that inspired you? Oh, gosh. Uh, I have too many books to pick a favorite. Um, I will mention a couple of my favorite living authors who are uh, David Mitchell, who's the author of Cloud Atlas, and Kazuo Ishiguro, who is the author of Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. I'll also throw a, throw a bone out to Stephen King, who... I did not discover until until I was in college, actually, and I was working in a library and picked up a copy of The Stand, which I hadn't heard much about, but I knew, of course, of Stephen King. And at the time, I just thought, oh, he's a you know best-selling writer, whatever. But uh, I started reading The Stand and looked up three hours later to discover that... Uh, I had missed my dinner. So there's a lot of things that I've that I've picked up from him. Ishiguro and David Mitchell are considered in the 
greater community. They're considered quote unquote literary authors, but they both dabble in at least the fantastical and very much science fiction and fantasy in some cases. Cloud Atlas was made into a very science fiction-y movie, um, and David Mitchell's latest, well, next from latest book, The Bone Clocks, is a really terrific sort of future examination of the way we might be going. I was going to say, I think at one point in reading uh, Isolation Play, I got so engrossed in reading, I missed my train stop. <laughs> Well, thank you. So That's a I, great compliment. I know how that feels. There's an interesting point I want to take from that. You've, to my knowledge, I mean, you may maybe I'm wrong. It may be in a short story somewhere that you've written, but you haven't written much science fiction. But is it something you might consider? Uh, I I have not. I've thought about it, but as I've grown up, I've realized I think that the books that I loved growing up were nearly all fantasy. I liked science fiction in a few cases, and there was a time when I was seven or eight when I wanted to be a scientist, not any particular kind of scientist, just a scientist who discovered things that made the world better. But as as I've grown up, I think I feel much more comfortable with fantasy, although as I'm reviewing my bookshelf, certainly there are science fiction books there, uh, but the ones that I feel closer to are the, the fantasies. Yeah, you sometimes wonder at this rate if someone's going to make a furry Game of Thrones. I'm pretty sure someone already has. (laughs) I suspect so. Uh, I mean, it makes me laugh sometimes when uh, novels like that and uh, Fifty Shades are not considered adult in terms of their content. Sometimes you watch... watch Well, Fifty Shades is, but yeah. But it's just funny that something like some of your works you kind of list under adult and sometimes it's like, "Eh, I'm not so sure. Right. Uh, I do think probably Rukus's Off the Beaten Path trilogy is as close as uh, Furry has to Game of Thrones at the moment. Ah, I see. So is there any topic you haven't written about so far that you would like to pick up your pen and write about? I don't know about topics, but uh, I will say that one one kind of book that I always enjoyed, I'm I'm somewhat of a a minor collector in that if I pick up a few of a series of a thing, then I feel like I really want to get the whole series. And as a result, I've, I've always enjoyed those kind of plot token collection fantasies where the hero has to assemble the four pieces of the missing crown in order to, you know, defeat the evil sorceress and reclaim the throne of Galadriel or whatever it is. And I've, I've always had in the back of my head that I would I would like to write one of those things where you're you're searching like each part of the story is searching for a different piece and then how the pieces all fit together and things like that and it would just satisfy my collector heart uh, and I I've not managed to do that one yet. That sounds exciting. It could be a furry Harry Potter Lord of the Rings mix. <laughs> could be. They were both uh, – well, Lord of the Rings is a much more of a quest fantasy. I'm trying to think of – see, the funny thing is I tell you I always I, – I loved these books and then the, I can't think of a, of a really good example of any of them at this point. But um, the Harry Potter maybe. Uh, I am working on a magic school book, but it's more like a college and an alternate history. So, yeah, I'm not 
I'm not sure that quite fits the the Harry Potter thing, although it has some similar elements to it, as I think uh, any magic school story at this point has some Harry Potter elements in it. Yeah, you could say Rowling's kind of invented a new subgenre there. Uh, yes, I think. Well, and she really, she also tapped into this very well-established genre of British boarding school stories, which uh, I'm certain you're aware of, which goes back uh, a century at least. P.G. Wodehouse wrote some terrific uh, British boarding school stories, and um, and I think she continued, she tapped into that tradition, but then added this whole magical world to it. And then the story of Harry himself, which which really brought a new dimension to the stories. Yeah. Many readers of your novels often cite how much they feel they resonate with your characters and their relationships and struggles. Is that the intention? Well, sure. Um, it's very it's very flattering whenever I hear that, um, because, you know, as a writer, you sit and invent these characters and these worlds in your own head. And you think, am I just deranged? Am I you know, inventing these people who have no relation to the real world at all. So whenever someone writes and says, oh, everything that Dev was going through, I really relate to, that's great. It's it, it's kind of a, a validation that I'm creating realistic characters who mean something to people. And if they say, you know, and relating to Dev really helped me deal with my own problems in life, that's a bonus. That's always, that's something really wonderful to hear because I feel like I really am now that scientist who's discovered something that will help the world and, you know, helping people deal with their problems, especially in the arena of young and uh, and middle-aged gay men and or women who are not really sure how to express their identity in this world or how to make a place for themselves or how to have a relationship even. It, it, I, I guess to, if you want to be completely corny about it, brings more love into the world, and I'm all in favor of that. You certainly are more in favor of that. <laughs> Do you think that um, some of these struggles that some people have will get easier as LGBT rights uh, increase? And you've you've often written in your personal diaries about LGBT issues, um, especially during the the struggle for equal marriage in the United States and around the world. Do you feel there is a, a shift in the rights movement? Uh, I feel I feel that there's been a shift going back to uh, I get I'm going to say about five or six years now, and uh, and I and I write in an afterward to over time I kind of track the advancement of gay rights over the time I've been writing the. Devin Lee series, uh, which is really interesting. And the the past, uh, really the past 10 years have been this amazing change, at least in the United States, but also around the world. I know the, uh, the weekend that I was visiting England for Confuzzled happened to also be the weekend that uh, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the House of Lords was debating same-sex marriage and passed it. England's same-sex marriage law went into effect within a month of the United States Supreme Court striking down California's Prop 8 and opening the door for many, many other states to start pursuing their own lawsuits. Um, and that was 2013, I believe. Uh, the, the law came into effect in March 2014 here. Okay. So, yes, so that sounds about right. 
we were over there, I think it was May 2013, that the uh, decision was actually passed by the House. Yes, that's when they were still reading the, the third or second bill, yes. Because it went through a bit later in the year, so I think they were still debating the, the first or second draft before the third and final draft was bought by the Houses of Parliament. Got it. And, uh, and the Supreme Court decision in our country that year was in June, so, um, so they were very close. It was June uh, last year, actually, wasn't it? Um, well, so there were two. There were two Supreme Court decisions, and the first was California's Prop Eight changed the California Constitution to say marriage is only between a man and a woman, which parenthetically was a terribly written proposition, and it left the door open for California to grant a nameless status to same-sex couples that enjoyed all the benefits of married couples but couldn't be called marriage, which is essentially what the California judge ordered them to do until the Supreme Court said, you can't change your constitution to deny same-sex marriage, at which point they threw the whole thing out the window. And that was 2013. And 2015, the Supreme Court overturned, uh, was it was it overturning the, no, no, no. It was the um, plaintiff, the guy from Ohio who wanted his name on his partner's death certificate, I believe. I think it was either that or something to do with the um, inheritance or something, wasn't it? I'd have to look it up. But um, yeah, I think it was something like that where he wanted to be on, he was in the will, I think, and he wanted, uh, I I have to go, I feel like I need to go and look on Wikipedia. The court's decision in June of this past year was states cannot make any law that forbids same-sex marriage and uh, essentially by by that decision um, forced every state to uh, allow same-sex couples to get married. So that was that was the difference was that one one was particular to California but had implications for the rest of the country. The other was literally for all the rest of the country. Yeah, I remember being really happy when the Supreme Court decided to uh, strike down the uh, the one in New York and kind of make it federal. It was because that was the big, right. the big, the big hurdle, wasn't it? Because there was a lot of politicians saying let the states decide, and then they just said no, let's just get it sorted with and just, just decide. <laughs> well, nationally. and in two thousand twelve, um, four U.S. states actually voted to allow same-sex marriage. And so at that point, the people who were saying, well, uh, you know, the legislation shouldn't decide, you know, the court shouldn't decide, it should be uh, up to the people, um, they'd run out of places to shift the responsibility because the legislatures, the courts, and the people were all now coming down in favor of it. And so there was nowhere where, you know, unless they were going to go say, you know, well, you shouldn't leave it up to the people. They don't know what they want. It should be determined by a council of religious bigots like us. And uh, nobody quite seemed ready to go that route. So yeah, here we are. Yeah, we should just mention that you you, you had to put the the you had a phone call while you uh, so the vo- your voice has slightly changed. It actually sounds better now than it did earlier. In the- <laughs> uh, I, yes, I I apologize for that, but I'm glad the voice sounds better. Your experience in the fandom. You've been in the fandom about, as you say, just over twenty years. Do you how do you feel the direction of the fandom is going and and the site and the way it's growing? Furry's always been very open, very welcoming. And one of the things that I tell non-furries who ask me about conventions is, you know, if you go to 
a science fiction convention not having read any science fiction books, or if you go to a Star Trek convention not having seen any of Star Trek, or if you go to a Doctor Who convention not having seen any of Doctor Who, you might find people who are fun to talk to, who are pleasant and are welcoming, but you're you're rather likely to get a little bit lost. Because people go to science fiction conventions to talk about the books they've read and the authors. They go to Doctor Who conventions to talk about Doctor Who. They go to Star Trek conventions to talk about Star Trek. But people who come to furry conventions, even without any kind of furry background, find it very easy to to access. It's it's as easy as just saying, hey, have you ever thought about what animal you might be? And then they're off. Like, hey, would you like to get a little drawing of an animal with your name on it or make up a new name or make up a new character or, you know, just walk around and, and look at all the, the artwork that people are doing? Um, it, it's much easier to get. It's, it's very accessible. And it's something that um, more and more people keep discovering. The fandom just keeps growing every year. Did you see the animated GIF that somebody had put out of furry conventions in the United States by year? Yes. And just how it's exploded? Yes, it was the um, animated uh, GIF by Huskoon of showing yes. the, the growth in furry conventions in the United States. And then he did a separate one of international conventions. Oh, I didn't see that one. But I imagine it was very similar. Yes, you just see a few pop up here and there, and then all of a sudden it looks like a virus has spread around the world. <laughs> Yes. Um, and I think one of the one of the really neat things about it is it feels very similar overall to the fandom that I joined 20 odd years ago. It was I mean, the biggest change, I think, is that it's it's much younger in the average age of people. I think the average age of a furry fan now is something like 19 or 20. Back in the 90s, it was probably more late 20s but you know more and more kids have the internet and the ability to search for things and people come to it through disney films uh as as probably i did they come through it to it through video games they come to it through tv and just about you know any any method you can think of and then and then they stay because it's a it's fun it's creative it it allows you to express yourself and discover yourself. And that focus on just building, kind of building this furry world that we're all part of has remained a constant in the fandom. So I'm still very much enjoying it as much as I did so many odd years ago when I joined it. In some cases, very odd years. Interesting. Because the fandom's a lot younger now, do you feel that has any profound shift in in attitudes like because i i've been to i went to my first comic con recently and of course with yourself i attended uh Worldcon, which is the largest science fiction convention in the world and that mm-hmm. was that was a first for me too and the atmosphere at those was is similar in some ways but completely different in others and um, do you worry that some people see the fandom too much as a place to party maybe not not as intellectual should we say well, I'm I'm certain that it has that impression from a from the standpoint of a writer, you know, the science fiction fandom f- was founded on books, which furry fandom was not. And there are splits in the science fiction fandom now too, where there are people who want to just have conventions about books and ignore movies and TV and video games and costuming 
there are people who want their conventions to be inclusive of all of those elements. Dragon Con is one of those that focuses on gaming and media and is generally much, much larger than any science fiction convention. The the science fiction ones tend to focus on books, and so there's a lot of attention paid to writing and, I guess, more quote-unquote intellectual pursuits. But you also have to remember that it's probably only in the last 10 to 15 years, maybe, that science fiction has really gotten that label of, hey, it's actually quite good fiction. You know, Ender's Game came out as a movie recently, and it's a very influential book, and there's a lot of really interesting philosophy in it, and and there's been some interesting philosophy written about it. But when it came out in the 80s, it was completely disregarded by the mainstream media. It was a huge sensation in science fiction circles, and probably one in a hundred people outside of the science fiction community could have told you anything about the book. Whereas now you have, uh, you know, John Scalzi's Red Shirts is a book that gets front and center placement at brick and mortar bookstores, uh, has a TV series in development, has people are very much more aware of science fiction these days. So partly, you know, those attitudes have changed too. The, the view of science fiction as maybe a place where some really interesting intellectual thinking is going on uh, has not always been there. Furry, the writing scene has also just come on very strongly in the last 10 or, or so years. But Furry is much more a visual fandom. It's much more about exploration and identity. And so it doesn't have that same reputation. But that's also not something that it's striving for, if that makes sense. I think so. I just find it interesting that science fiction often will delve on things that are, are, are big questions for, I guess, humanity. And obviously, mm -hmm. I, I would slightly say that there are aspects of the furry fandom that did come from books when you look at certain comics and, and novels that in the early, late 70s, early 80s, if I recall. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't there back then, obviously, but I've done a bit of the reading about some of that from Adjective Species and, um, and Fred Patton. You uh, now you're seen kind of as almost the uh, the godfather of fairy literature in a way um, with your uh, with the with with the Ursa uh, majors you have and uh, just the reputation your your books have commercially within the fandom. Do you ever worry that people feel intimidated to try and write at all in any way? No, if they if they are, they don't tell me that. I far more frequently get people telling me that reading my books inspired them to write or that they didn't realize that they could really write furry stories until they had picked up one of my books, which I don't get as much these days because there's, you know, the Furry Writers Guild is out there and there's writing tracks at all the conventions now. So the number of people I think who don't realize that you can write furry stories is dwindling. But I get this too, you know, when I pick up a really good book and finish it, I get this burst of, you know, I want to write something like this. And I, I occasionally get emails from people who say that, that they're inspired. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it works that way. Uh, I really, I really would like to see a lot more writing in furry fandom and, 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 it, and the fandom's moving in that direction. As I mentioned, the Furry Writers Guild, there's a lot of good talent there. Uh, a lot of good stories coming out, uh, especially in the past few years. 
I see. Um, I think the reason I said what I did is partly because um, maybe it's the marketing, of, as I as I put it. But I I haven't heard as much about big uh, book releases in the fandom as much as I might say hear about um, other other thing other events going on, such as conventions and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I thought that. But do, is there any more you can tell us about the Furry Writers Guild? Because it's a, a new concept to me. I hadn't heard of it. Um, yeah, it's been around for. Whew four or five years or more, perhaps. It's essentially a group designed to help uh, further the cause of furry writing. There are forums. uh, The Furry Writers Guild keeps track of anthologies that are looking for submissions and collects like the calls for submissions in one place so that writers can have a place to go and see, you know, where can I sell a story? They provide a couple of chat rooms and places for writers to gather and talk about craft and other challenges. And so they're they're really they're trying to collect and grow the community, which is uh, which is pretty cool. That's fantastic. So now we come on to uh, a couple of the more generic questions on the fandom and such, as well as uh, some questions I like to ask uh, each guest. So the first one is uh, what's your worst experience in the fandom? so far oh gosh um yeah there's a there's a there was a movement that had a name for a little while and now doesn't because the movement proved rather ineffective at the time but the sentiment still remains and it's the it's this the sort of sentiment in the fandom about adult literature and i should say by adult in this case, I'm talking about sexually explicit literature, not violently explicit literature, which does not always seem to be categorized as adult, at least in the United States. There's there's kind of this up and down, and people seem to be much more chill about it uh, the last couple few years. But you know, one of the reasons that I wrote my first novel was because even back in the the 90s, there early 90s, there was this feeling that while well, you were either writing sex scenes or you were writing real stories and ne'er the twain shall meet. And I didn't believe that there was a reason that you couldn't have a compelling story, well-written, that also included sex. I mean, this happens all the time in mainstream science fiction, for example. So I started writing that and people persist in making this division between stories with sex in them and stories without. At the same time, (laughs) there's also a segment of the buying public that definitely prefers stories that have sex in them. There's an interestingly complex argument to be made, and nobody seems to want to make it. They kind of boil it down to, well, I don't want to read stories with sex in them. And, And you're like, well, that's fine, but don't prevent other people from making that same choice. So it's sort of that. It's kind of the sentiment that I run into occasionally that says, well, if, if your book has sex in it, then it's for this segment of people and it's not serious literature. Though, again, as I've said, in the past few years, I have not run into that as much. So hopefully, and that's one thing that you mentioned, Fifty Shades of Grey. I do think Fifty Shades of Grey has made people a lot more aware that you can have a sexual story Albeit, you know, I've not read Fifty Shades of Grey, but the reviews that I've heard from people I trust are not necessarily flattering about this, the quality of its writing, but it was very popular nonetheless. So you can have these things out in the mainstream and you don't have to be ashamed of them. And 
you know, one of my friends wrote a book, uh, Cecilia Tan, the founder of Circlet Press, wrote a book called Slow Surrender, which was intended to be a well-written version of Fifty Shades of Grey, which has done very well. And so I think definitely attitudes are generally changing in the world at large, and that kind of filters down to the fandom. If there's anything then that Fifty Greys could be given credit for maybe even though generally most people think it's a terrible terrible writing at least it could be seen to be trying to break down a sexual taboo which might be a good thing or it might be a bad thing i'm yeah. not sure yeah absolutely I, I absolutely think so um and i haven't read it either i've just obviously you see all the the hype and obviously then the movie comes out and everything else anyway but the other thing is on the flip side is what would you say is the best thing about furry so for you really it's I mean, the best thing is the people, the, the sort of endless creativity and acceptance, the fact that you can bring whatever it is you want. If you decide that you want to teach people to dance in fursuit, you can start doing that. And years later, there are dance competitions at all the major cons now. If you decide that you want to put on an elaborate puppet show with music and script and effects and everything, you can do that. Confuzzled and Euroferns do those nearly every year. Um, if you decide that you want to try, for instance, uh, Mar- the artist Mary Mouse was one of, was the first one to start creating these pre-printed badges that were still appealing enough that people would want them. People at Fur Planet, uh, the people at Sofa Wolf have tried different things in the publishing field. There are people who come to conventions with their leather working. Um, there are artists who have tried different styles. And, you know, sometimes things catch on and sometimes things don't catch on. But the most that I hear from people walking around conventions is, you know, you don't generally hear people being shouted down or forced out of the fandom or forced to put away things. People just kind of go, eh, that's not really for me. And that's the worst they'll say, and then they'll move on. And, you know, the fact that you can you can do anything you want, and if it finds the right audience, it can be successful. And, I mean, look at me. You can write gay furry romance books, which 12 years ago was not a real genre. And, you know, if you find an audience for them, you can keep writing them. And, uh, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, I do love the fandom for its creativity, and that's the reason I really uh, I stick to it. And also, one reason why I'm really happy to be hosting this new podcast is to try and get the people of those different creativities to uh, share their experiences. And uh, and you were one of the first people I saw going around taking professional photographs at a convention. And I've since then seen a few more people doing photographic projects, but. Um, but that was another thing. And, you know, I, I have another friend who started the trend of professional fursuit photography at conventions where he would set up like a mini studio and people could come get their pictures taken. And it's kind of also why I love living in the Bay Area, because the Bay Area also has that mentality. It's just if you want to do something here, you have to find investors and set up a company. And it's much more complicated than just, you know, running a little business out of your house. Yeah, on that kind of point, I mean, I've always wondered if Furry will ever become more commercial because obviously we're more fans of each other, so we don't normally have the corporate side, but you always wonder sometimes if that's going to happen. So I'll tie that into the question I was going to ask, which is where do you think the fandom is going to be in another five years? I think we'll be very much similar to where we are now, bigger, perhaps uh, a little more well-known, 
there's certainly a shift in the mainstream perception of furries in that you're starting to see a lot more blog posts and articles from people saying, hey, you know what? I went to a furry convention and I had a really good time and everybody's super nice and they're not weird like you might think from reading all those articles on the internet. I got, uh, I actually got solicited by a science fiction magazine to write an essay about furry fandom and furry conventions, which I believe will be out this month. Uh, I'll be posting about it when it when it comes out. But there was some interest and I asked them why they wanted to have somebody write about the furry fandom in their magazine. And they said, we always felt uneasy, like we would hear the jokes about them and we felt like, you know, oh, it's a bunch of people doing their own thing. Why do people have this perception of them? And, you know, now they have a magazine and they have a, a platform from which to let them tell their own story. So they chose to do that. People are, I should say, people are already starting to see the entirety of furry as opposed to just the sensationalistic parts that make for lots of clickbait. And you're probably in the next five years, uh, I'll, I'll actually be really interested to see what happens with Zootopia. Disney has sort of acknowledged the furry, its furry fans. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the film after it comes out. Um, it'll be interesting to see what future projects come about. And honestly, I, I would expect sometime in the next five to 10 years that a self-created furry work, whether, you know, a little, a movie, maybe a book from the fandom, I'm mostly dreaming at that point because I think that would be really cool. Or, you know, a, a record album by a, by a furry because there's some really talented musicians in the fandom. You know, one of those will start to get more exposure out in the mainstream and people will kind of follow it back and say, oh, that came out of this community. That's kind of cool. I almost felt that happened a couple of years ago when Nordgard came out and it was being reviewed by IGN seriously. And I, that to me felt like an important point. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, nothing, you know, when people ask any kind of anyone about their their overnight success they say well yeah the overnight success happened after five years of hard work so you know none of this it's not going to happen overnight it's going to happen because nordgard gets reviewed in a few places and people notice it and then start taking note of the fandom and then a couple more places review the next thing that comes out and fox Amore does an album at abbey road studios the people there really like and he starts to get more no notoriety and then it just it all feeds on each other and another great thing about the community is that furries are always really, really happy to support other furries. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of the more competitive nature in these communities. So and, and there's some, but by and large, I think most of the writers, for example, understand that the more furry books are out there, the more chance that someone will find one that they like and then be drawn to the others. It's not necessarily that there's a finite number of dollars to be spent on furry books. And if, you know, I'm getting a hundred of those dollars, then that's a hundred less to go around for everyone else. It, the, the whole idea is to expand everyone's reach and then everyone benefits. Indeed. And it's interesting to think of the idea of a furry economy and how that may grow as the fandom grows. Uh, there's absolutely a furry economy. There's uh, You look at things like the money brought into cities by furry conventions. Anthrocon specifically has done a lot of work for that. But also, I, I believe Further Confusion has looked into those numbers for downtown San Jose. And, um, you know, furries, 
absolutely love furry products and will spend a lot of money on them and to go to be near them. I would be really interested to know how much uh, Zootopia merchandise has been bought by furries in the last few months. Uh, because I know we went to the Disney store on a recent trip and found found several uh, little interesting things to pick up. I've certainly noticed on my Twitter feed a lot of people going out buying all sorts, the books, the plushes, the bags, the shirts, all sorts. So I think it's going to go down very well in the fandom. I it'd think be, so. I hope it's at least it. a passable movie. Well, the trailers look promising. They do, actually. At least it's a movie with a good sense of humor and a good tone. And even if the story isn't everything you might want it to be, at least it will be enjoyable to sit through. And yeah, I mean, Disney's Disney has put out pretty good movies lately. So I have I have some hopes that it will at least be enjoyable. Indeed. I want to leave you with one last question. And that is if you're stranded on a desert island. What? Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Terrible thought. What meal, movie and song would you like to have with you? Oh, my God. Yeah, see, these are, it was not so much the, the being stranded on the island. It was the whole, like, pick one thing, meal, movie, and song. See, these are also not going to necessarily be my favorites because I might think, well, I I really like pizza. But if I'm on a desert island, I want to make sure that I'm not just eating pizza because I'll die of a heart attack in like a year or so. Oh, don't worry. It wasn't meant to be practical. It was just meant to make you. <laughs> no, no, no. I know. I know. I'm just, this is, this is how I think through things. You know, there is a uh, place near here, an Irish pub that does a, an amazing chicken curry and you can have it with rice, steamed vegetables and fries and, or I'm sorry, chips. And that would probably be enough to get me through uh, on a desert island. That's a uh, that's a pretty good meal. Although I would miss pizza. What song, man? One song to take to a desert island with me. Um, you know, that's it. That would that's going to change depending on what day you ask me. Right now, I'm I'm going to say uh, Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty because it's a long song. It's got a little bit of variety in it, and it's it's pretty mellow. So I can I can definitely listen to it over and over again. And one movie, um, and I have so many favorite movies, I can't even narrow them down to one. Um, let, let's go with uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I seem to be able to watch that over and over again. All right, then. That's an interesting set of choices. Um, and there's definitely <laughs> nothing wrong with pizza. I think everyone likes pizza. Yeah. Also, pizza is kind of a boring answer to that question. They're just like, oh, pizza. Eh, everybody likes pizza. I'm going to go with my Irish pub's chicken curry. That's something probably no one else would say, except for maybe a couple other people I know. You know what? Next time you go in London, maybe I'll have to take you out for one. Oh, please do. That would be amazing. Is there anything else before we go? Nope. I'd like to thank you for setting this up and wish you lots of luck with the, the podcast. Um I guess I should mention one more thing that you've talked a lot about the out of position series. I actually have another book coming out in March at Furry Fiesta online in on ebook in uh, April and then May, which is the final book in the Dangerous Spirits trilogy, Black Angel. Well, uh, well, I'll save more discussion about that one for another podcast. I'm sure we'll have you back on again in the future at some point. <laughs> Kyle? Sounds good. Thank you so much for talking. Sure.
Thank you for the time. You've been listening to Pause and Reflect with Kyle Gold and your host, Mike Pause. If you have enjoyed this, please share it and listen out for more interviews soon. I wish you a good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you may be in the world.